I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $45 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash TheDepressionFiles and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash TheDepressionFiles. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? You know, crying spells, no appetite, not able to sleep at all. I had a real increase in obsessional thoughts and, and generalized worry. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Good evening and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm really excited tonight. We have Derek Chichak on the line. Derek is a licensed social worker, and I uh, want to welcome you to the show, Derek. Yeah, thanks, Al. Uh, I I didn't even ask you this ahead of time, Derek. You um, are I know you have a PhD. Do you prefer going by Doctor Chichak? Uh, it, it always sounds nice, but not a preference. No, no. <laughs> okay. All right. It, yeah, I mean it's much uh, earned and well deserved. I'm sure Thank you know you. it's a lot of work. I I know that as an educator, um, yeah, yeah. and I I noticed uh, from your bio that you actually have four degrees, including a PhD. I mean, yeah. I can't believe you're only 32 years old with all that schooling behind you. <laughs> I guess I didn't have a lot uh, going on other than schooling. Apparently. <laughs> well, it's very very impressive. Uh, so you know, I I definitely want to hear. I know your PhD is in social work with a focus on workplace wellness. And I'd love to hear about that. But before we get into that, I know that you also have your own history of dealing with uh, some mental illness. And I think mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, it started around age 16. Yeah, yeah, that's right. On. What kinds of things were you experiencing at age 16? And, and take us back. So that was probably what, middle school maybe? Yeah, so it was uh, grade 10 for me here. Okay. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, it goes back a, probably a couple years before then, but uh, I remember it distinctly from about age uh, 16 on. So my, uh, sort of motivation for, for coming on the show was I, I think, um, there, there's a, a certain subset of, of mental illness that I do believe is, is biologically based. Right. And, uh, 
and I have one of those histories where I had a, a great upbringing, right? I don't have a trauma history. I don't have any of those adverse child experiences, uh, things that people look for when they're trying to find a cause. Um, just one of those really early onset sort of biologically based presentations, right? And uh, so at 16, I was really struggling with uh, panic attacks. Um, and really that just intensified over, you know, the, the following four years until I had sort of the first diagnosed major depressive episode and, and then started treatment. So um, I put up with those, you know, for, you know, a good four years off and on. So when you, uh, at age 16 and you experience a panic attack, can you yeah. describe what that was like at the time? And did you realize what was going on? I, I would kind of doubt it right at age 16. <laughs> Yeah, well, I pre, think this uh, was... Pre-PhD, right? You didn't have the PhD <laughs> at 16 yet. Yeah, definitely pre-PhD, <laughs> um, but not pre-WebMD, right? And that's part of the problem. So uh, you can, I, I know I was uh, a teen who was stuck in that sort of uh, trap of self-diagnosing and, and still trying to figure out what's going on all at the same time. Right. Uh, so so I, I remember, you know, the, the first one that I remember was at 14, and I remember that because... Um, I was uh, delivering newspaper uh, after school, um, and I remember being on my uh, my street where I grew up and uh, having this panic attack. Um, and the first thought is, "I'm dying," and uh, that's a common story for you know people who've had panic attacks. But it's general; it's it's genuinely what you feel, and there's there's no other way to describe it. I remember um, sort of darting home. Because my thought was, well, I don't want to just, you know, keel over on some stranger's lawn. I might as well at least get home and have a chance at getting some help. Um, what kind so, yeah, of physical it, sensations at that point? I mean, is this like uh, heart racing or what's going on? Yeah, so it's 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 heart racing. It's uh, it's dizziness. Um, you know, not not really a blurred vision, but this just uh, being overwhelmed with with needing to get get home and get help right um but yeah the physical sensations are, are certainly the the ones that stand out um tightness in the chest trouble swallowing sort of a choking sensation um yeah, and that's the first one i remember and that all essentially happens all at the same time yeah yeah well, all yeah. Of those symptoms just hit you and and is there something that you would point to that would trigger that to happen while you were out delivering papers not at that time right that's the the thing is that it sort of builds later on because you end up avoiding more and more triggers or things that you think could be triggers um, but at that point no there was no reason for it um, just completely out of the blue not knowing what it is um, and, and for me uh, generally I have very little sort of lead-in uh, some people, you know, can feel it coming on for, you know, up to about 10 minutes. Uh, for me, it's just instantaneous. And then it resolves quite quickly as well. So that first one, I know you said you rushed home. W yeah, was yeah. anybody at home and, and what was their reaction and how did you describe to them what was going on? So I actually don't remember uh, what happened after I got home. Um, it, it's sort of like an amnesia, to be honest with you. And, and, and I've you know, encountered that subsequently as well, where uh, you're just so exhausted from the attack, as brief as it is, um, that I, my last memory, 
you know, again, this was at age 14, right? So I don't remember all the details now, but uh, sort of going up, going up my driveway. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I obviously went in the house and, 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 you know, went on from there, but, but I don't actually remember if anyone was home, what I said at the time. Um, I don't remember really talking about that one. Okay. You know, I, I think it was, or at least I hoped it was an isolated incident, but I right away was sort of looking into it online. Like what the heck was this? Right. And you yeah. said uh, from 16 to about age 20, you went through several, you, you didn't really specify, was it several panic attacks? Are you talking like once every six months or how frequent were they? And, and were you living kind of daily in fear of, wow, what if this happens again? Yeah. So it, 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 uh, it sort of built up over the, the uh, four years there. So from 16 on, and, and I mean, I had a couple in between, um, between 14 and 16, I, probably a handful, but I don't remember them because it wasn't the first one. A- and at 16, uh, I know it became more frequent because I remembered having them at school. Uh, I remembered learning to drive, right, and, and having a few situations where I'd be out and have to pull over and just sort of let it pass because, you know, I couldn't concentrate uh, couldn't catch my breath, those sorts of things. Um, and then, you know, sort of the, uh, stressors that came with, uh, graduating high school and, and moving on to university and things like that, uh, didn't help, but it wasn't a direct trigger either. Right. And were you talking at the time to your folks or getting any kind of help at this point? Yeah. So I, I had started to, um, you know, explain what was going on or what I thought was going on and it, and it resonated. Um, so there is a family history for me of, of the panic attacks, um, which made total sense, right? It wasn't a surprise to my parents who completely understood. And and they were able to kind of help you through that time period. Yeah. Um, because that wasn't really a time when, uh, there was anything to do, right? I, I wasn't, ill i wasn't you know really affected by it they were terrifying right but i wasn't staying home or anything like that and i hadn't had uh, my major depressive episode yet right, right. so so, um, so essentially they weren't they weren't really impacting your life to a point where anybody felt like we we need to go and get this addressed yeah exactly and okay. I, and i was comfortable at the time knowing what I thought it was right. I had this validation from my parents. I had done some reading, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with that until about 20 because things just got a little more severe. Yeah. And what happened at 20? Yeah. So 20 was, um, sort of, uh, it, it was a, a, a bad summer. I describe it cause I remember it was being in the summer. I've always had sort of this heat intolerance and I'm a little more edgy in the summer to begin with. Um, and uh, I, I remember this summer I was, you know, working a couple jobs and, and had a relationship that ended. And uh, that sort of all culminated with just this, uh, well, what I later found out was this major depressive episode. Um, I, I wasn't really expecting that. I had sort of anticipated at that point in my life that I would just have panic attacks, right? Um, that that was going to be my illness, um, but what happened then was sort of this, 
just all encompassing, um, you know, crying spells, no appetite, not able to sleep at all. Um, I had a real increase in obsessional thoughts and, and generalized worry. Um, I, I look back and sort of, you know, what I had logged at the time when I started to talk to uh, um, my psychologist and then my family doctor, and, and it was just building for about a month, right? Until it just sort of ended up in this sort of state where you can't meet any of your general basic needs, right? When you're not eating and you're not sleeping, you're not doing too well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, you were seeing the psychologist at this point? So it's an interesting thing because I uh, I had started with my family doctor, who I, I still see to this day and has been extremely supportive. Um, but, you know, I think there's a reluctance to start a 20-year-old on medication. Right. Um, so I remember spending a couple months in a lot of distress uh, thinking uh, and, and being encouraged by my family physician to, uh, you know, talk to somebody. Right. And I was doing that. So I had uh, asked one of my professors at school, who was a psychologist, if she could recommend somebody. And she recommended a colleague. And I started seeing this uh, psychologist and working through some of these, uh, um, you know, obsessions and worries and, and, you know, the cognitive symptoms. Uh, But it wasn't really helping at all. Could you give an example of some of your obsessive thoughts? Yeah, my... um, my obsessions, and it's it's strange because, again, hardwired, I guess, right? Not really having an identified uh, trigger. Um, I used to worry a lot about choking, about having a heart attack, um, you know, at 20. Right. right. Like, this is the this is the absurdity of it. But for no reason, I think it was just a bit of that uh, reinforcement going on with what your body's feeling. You know, the constant feeling like my chest is going to explode and, and things like that. Um, I used to uh, really obsess over different numbers. So I'd be looking at license plates all the time for patterns, right? Um, don't know what patterns I was looking for. Just sort of obsessed with license plates, right? Um, and would you be kind of saying the patterns in your head? The I couldn't find any. Right, <laughs> I couldn't find any patterns at all. So you're just um, like looking from plate to plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started checking um, uh, the uh, validation tags just to see if any were expired. Right, just things like that that really had no rational basis. Um, uh, numbers was another one. So I still prefer even numbers. Don't know why. It's just a, a, an uncomfortable thing about odd numbers. And, and that's um, in regards to just about anything? Like you walk yeah. into the theater and which seat you sit in if yeah, they're yeah. numbered. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, train tickets, plane tickets, doesn't matter. It's just a, um, it's just a preference. And, and does it just make you uncomfortable and it's a preference? Or is it a point where you say, you know what, I need a different seat. I, I can't sit in an odd number seat. No, no, it's not that uh, intrusive for me, right? Okay. It's it's, it's uh, just one of those idiosyncrasies where I don't know what it's about, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't um, affect how I, you know, would approach that. Right. Um, what I do have at the time, and what I still do do struggle with, is just this feeling of being trapped. So 
I still prefer to be by exits, right? I prefer aisle seats and in transportation and things like that. I don't like being the passenger in cars, you know, just things like that. Right, um, right. Like, like to have control over the environment so that I'm not uh, in a situation where I feel trapped. So that's something that's never really gone away. Right. So uh, I know I had uh, taken us off topic, but you were talking about okay. being 20, seeing a psychologist and feeling yeah. like it really wasn't helping you with this first bout of major depression. Yeah. So I think this was where, um, y- you know, I, I, I wasn't really sure. Is it is it one illness that will ultimately get better through talk therapy? Is it multiple illnesses? Is it just different uh, you know, aspects of the same illness for different people. Who knows, right? So, you know, I, I'm trusting the experts here. I'm I'm doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I was learning a lot about myself, right? Because at this time, I had started to isolate a little bit, right? Um, and and it, you know, I think back to like mine, and I was much older for my first bout. Like you're 20. This yeah. is this is pretty heavy stuff to be learning yeah. about and considering, and. I would imagine pretty darn scary as well. Yeah, I, I mean, the, it's a small comfort in liking sort of the experimental side of things, right? I, I have a pretty scientific mind, so um, it, it's very small comfort. Like, I, I, I wouldn't use this as any sort of consolation for what's going on, but the fact that I'm trying to figure out more about... Um, you know, what's going on and what this illness is and, um, you know, medications and ultimately, you know, finding out things like that. Right. I, I mean, so there it, was a piece that intrigued you, it sounds like. A little bit, right? right? It's small in hindsight, but definitely a piece that intrigued me. And also, you know, just having to to uh, deal with this and hopefully, um, you know, get back to uh, just the occasional panic attack, which I would have been comfortable with. Right. right? That's a deal you'd take. So, yeah, I'm working through uh, some of the... Um, you know, challenging your thoughts and challenging what if thinking and, uh, you know, um, reappraising the likelihood that some of these events are going to occur. Um, But it wasn't making a dent on any of the biological symptoms, right? So you still weren't eating, you still weren't sleeping well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, after a couple months of that, ultimately, uh, I did start on antidepressants. And, uh, prescribed by your family doctor or, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I started on that still at 20, uh, and you know, within, uh, I would say five days, uh, substantial improvement. Nice. Right. Yeah. Um, pretty quick given, uh, antidepressants. Pretty, oh, exactly. Right. I think it was just, a. uh, a bit of an indication of how I needed some sort of stabilization, right? Uh, <laughs> and it was the first one, too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Are you a believer in the placebo effect, and do you think that could have something to do with the quick efficacy of the medication? Well, I mean, there's there's substantial evidence for the placebo effect, right? I'm definitely a believer uh, in it. Um, I, I think this is a debate that will continue to come up with uh, antidepressant medication um, because I have no doubt that it has some sort of a role, but it doesn't explain a response in my case. It doesn't, expl- it doesn't completely explain the response. Right. You know, I, uh, I had some uh, 
genetic testing done a few years ago uh, around the, the pharmacogenetic realm, right, to see if medications could be sort of aligned with your uh, biology. And, and I, I found some things out through there where um, I just don't produce neurotransmitters to the same degree that, you know, a healthy brain would. And I know this is still in its infancy, right? I don't take this as the be-all and end-all, but there's enough information out there about some of these enzymes and the role they they do in in the uh, in the brain and in the body that makes sense for me. Right. Did you have that done completed before you were ever on a medication? No, no, oh, I don't. Okay. I don't even remember it happening. Um, that, so this was just a few years ago that I did that. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, sort of after my second bout. Right. So eventually, uh, after a couple of months of struggling with your first bout, you yeah, got yeah. on medication. Uh, yeah. And were you still seeing the psychologist? Yeah, and I, I still do to this day, but probably once a year. Okay. Right. right. Um, but yeah, I, I continued on because then there's a whole other adjustment that's going on. Absolutely. Right? That it sort of switches from uh, challenging some of these symptoms to... Uh, adjusting to illness or adjusting to a diagnosis and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, I continued to work with her for uh, uh, the better part of that uh, year. Which reminds me, you know, we didn't even talk about it. Did they yeah. give you a diagnosis immediately and was it strictly major depression or was there anything else along with it? No, not that not that was ever conveyed to me. Um and it's interesting because there's a school of thought out there that, uh, you know, the, the pathways are consistent and, and similar for a lot of the, the depression and anxiety illnesses. So, you know, the diagnosis is sort of secondary to finding a treatment that works. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's an interesting one because I don't remember my doctor ever saying, this is what I think you have. Uh, a lot of it got refined sort of after the fact um, and more recently, as I pursued other treatments about looking back, you know, looking back at my history and going, okay, well, this was probably uh, a major depressive episode. This is definitely panic disorder. But, you know, I have features of a lot of other anxiety disorders as well, just as, as part of this. So it's interesting. Like you said, I think it makes a lot of sense to, no matter what you want to call it, let's treat these symptoms and help alleviate the symptoms and bring the, the person back to their... Uh, you know, mm -hmm. back to their normal state, their baseline. And, yeah. uh, but at the same time, it's really interesting to me. So I went into a partial hospitalization program mm -hmm. and there was a check-in where there was the psychiatrist and a social worker and an occupational therapist and a few others. And within that two hour interview, and probably within the first hour of asking me interview questions while I'm in the midst of a major depression and not really cognitively doing well, not really being able to remember or focus. And they interview me and then they create a diagnosis and a plan of medication. And it just really surprised me. I was lucky enough to have my wife along with me because I asked her to go with me and yeah. she was able to correct me on some of my thoughts about what medications I was on or when I started them and mm -hmm. some other mm -hmm. pieces. But I really thought like, especially if somebody was not able to bring a loved one along, there may be people who don't want to admit that they're hearing voices or don't want to admit that they're self-medicating with booze every night. And so a diagnosis could be pretty skewed and they create a med plan and that just 
it really surprised me and I, I'm not sure if there's another way they could do it, but it just, it seemed, seems a bit flawed to me. I'm curious of your thoughts on that. I think one of the differences is, is, uh, being in a hospitalization or partial hospitalization program, um, you know, where there is a bit more of an expectation around a structured treatment plan. So yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting approach. I mean, you could, it's very common, right? I don't want right, to say sure. that's not the common approach. Um, I think in primary care, uh, which is where I was receiving treatment, uh, you know, for the, you know, for the last, uh, well, so for 10 years, uh, straight, um, it is more of that focus on, um, stabilizing the person, as you said, right? And then referring to a specialist or referring to a hospitalization uh, if that's required. I didn't really feel like I needed a diagnosis at that time. I just needed symptom relief, which right. is what we're saying. Uh, and I was getting that. Yep. Um, and I did quite well uh, working with my primary care physician uh, until the second uh, sort of episode about five years ago now yeah so you between the ages of 20 and 27 i think you had said was your second bout was yeah. it a fairly smooth seven years then yeah yeah so the the first um the first medication i took uh i continued to take uh and it worked well i was able to complete um my schooling i was able to complete um you know the majority of my phd this sort of uh, came on in the, the second uh, second year or so. Um, but I was functional. I was working. Um, and you, you stayed on that medication all the way through? Yep. That's okay. right. Yeah. Uh, um, and and I, I didn't really um, want to tinker with it because it was working. Yeah. But I definitely after, um, geez, I guess that would have been, yeah, so seven years. Uh, it, it, I felt it was wearing off. Right. I um, know sometimes they refer to it, this may be an old term, but the Prozac poop out. Oh, yeah, uh, You yeah. can be on one medication, and, and for some people sometimes uh, it does kind of wear out almost the effects that it was giving you. Yeah, yeah, the worst part is just not knowing when it's going to happen. It seems more likely to be a, a when than an if. Right. Uh, for most central nervous system drugs. So um, I, I was sort of at that state where, you know, it's it's not really helping with the mood anymore. Um, but the anxiety was okay. Right. Okay. And, and I still come back to that as being my starting point. I remember, um, you know, just the, the constant panic attacks right before the first episode at 20 and just not wanting to get back to that state. Right, right. Um, so I put up with that for a little while, but then um, I, I definitely felt, uh, you know, by 27, uh, it had worn off. There was another uh, trigger in my life and uh, it didn't really provide any sort of protection at that time. So uh, before we get into that second bout, yeah, yeah. I'd like to ask, you know, it sounds like you're giving a whole lot of credit to the medication. And just to be clear, I'm not anti-meds at all, really. Mm -hmm. But um, but were you doing anything else to support your mental health at the time? Did you start exercising more? I know you did a lot of reading about it, which I think is very <laughs> important too, just yeah. the educational piece. 
But did you change your diet? Were you exercising? Were you journaling? Anything else to support your mental health? Or did you simply take a medication? It was doing great, and that's and you just went on your life as if you never had a, a depressive bout. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting you bring that up because there's been a change in the last you know few years for me in those regards. Between 20 and 27, though, I didn't really change anything else. I mean, I checked in with my psychologist. Um, you know, I did. Uh, regularly, I so I, I started to, you know, after the first couple of years there of, of doing CBT, I started to you know go back to seeing her about annually, okay. um, just to check in and, and see, um, you know, talk about life, um, and uh, you know, other than trying to keep my stress in check, which is a pretty vague statement, but <laughs> it's just one of those sort of general rules. Uh, no, I wasn't doing anything different. Uh, I had always, um, since I'd been at university, I had been a jogger, so I was continuing to jog, um, but no other changes and no no dietary considerations or anything like that. So all right, so and, then, and oh, this go ahead. Is part, yeah, sorry, this is part of the part of the uh, sort of naivety, right, that comes with it, because I legitimately believed before I understood, you know, the the concept of the Prozac poop out that just keep doing what you're doing, right. right? It's it you this you've 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 fixed it right. Just stay on the med, and keep your stress down, and just go. Um, and and that did work for a number of years, right? Yeah. So so I have, and maybe you'll get into this because I know you made it sound like that was what happened through your first bout. I have this uh, theory, I guess you might say, and I I have no no measures to check its validity or anything like that. But I, <laughs> when people talk about relapses, um, mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes if relapses are more common with people who just do one thing, whether it's just take one medication or just see a therapist for a bit. Um, and then, and don't really make any sig other significant changes if it's those people who see a relapse more frequently than those people who, yeah, they may have jumped on a medication, taking a medication, stay with the medication. They're also going to a support group, seeing a therapist regularly and so forth. I'm wondering if there's a lot less likelihood of another bout of depression. Again, nothing to substantiate that. And and perhaps that is just me saying, okay, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm not going to ever go through that again because I've had two bouts and never want to be in that place ever yeah. again. And I'm yeah. sure you know that feeling. Yeah. Exactly. You know, there's a certain there's a certain appeal to what you're saying. I, I don't know the, the uh, science on that myself. Um, I, I do know uh, having more supports in your life now, um, it, it does offer sort of that cushion should something else come, should there be a third episode, should there be another setback, right? Um, that doing any one thing won't right. tacked against. So that it, it, your, your theory makes a, a lot of sense. Um, I, I'd be curious myself to, to see if that really, uh, stands up because I think, um, as I started to talk about there with the, the genetic testing, I think uh, there's a bit of a language problem with mental illness in general, where um, if someone has a biological predisposition and someone else has a really traumatic life event and you both end up with a depressive sort of presentation, right? There's, it's two very different paths to the same endpoint. So are we really talking about 
the same illness? I love that question, and I have thought about that often. Yeah. Is it really the same illness? Could there be many different types of depressions? And I know yeah. we know that yeah. there are some, right? Like dysthymia, yeah. the generalized chronic low-grade depression. But could there be many more different types of depressions that we don't really, we haven't really distinguished? And therefore, could there be different and better therapies for each of these different types as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think down the road there will be, um, and there's a bit of there's a bit of a bit of brain research, excuse me, around this where you can have different um, patterns that show up in the brains of people with m mental illness, uh, and you can sort of do different uh, subtype categorizations based on that. It still comes down to in 2019 the same pool of treatments at the end of the day, right? Um, and then we're back to what I'm talking about is as treating your symptoms, even if you have type one depression or type two depression, not that those are classifications we have, but as an example, uh, there aren't special treatments for one subtype or another. Right. It's all, it's all very, uh, very theoretical and, and still very conceptual at the brain level. Right. And even yeah. the medications, I mean, there's limited research. Isn't it true that there's limited research, particularly on long-term effects of antidepressants and and actually little yeah. research that really proves the medicinal effects of the drugs well I think the long-term question is a tougher one because uh, I can tell you personally and and a lot of people uh, that I've spoken to will will validate this at, a, at a, an individual level that the alternative to not being on medication is much worse no oh, I would agree Right, and, uh, and particularly with a major depression, yeah, yeah, it's it's a no, it's no contest for me. Right. Um, the, what I do struggle with long term is is there is some research that suggests um, that people who are taking medication, whether it's antipsychotics, whether it's antidepressants, might have more relapses over time, and it's sort of like, are you predisposing yourself? Is there a pro-depressant effect of antidepressants. And there's a bit of research around that as well. It's not conclusive by any means because it's very much what you're saying. It's There's no research on the long-term. There's also no research on the long-term uh, cause. Right. So it, it's, it's a terrible way to think because you know this is better than the alternative, which is nothing, but is this just buying some time? Um knowing that it could also be, uh, you know, potentially uh, inducing a subsequent episode down the road. Uh, but you just don't know. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. And I, I'm going to pretend I still hadn't heard that uh, <laughs> as a person who's still on a medication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but this is this is just the, uh, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it well. It's a bit of the the dark ages of, of mental illness treatment. Yeah, man, the ways, dark right? ages. That's a really good way to put it. I mean, yeah. it still blows my mind that, that, you know, you take a medication and wait four to six weeks oftentimes to see whether or not it's going to help you. And then if it doesn't try another one or try a different classification. And then, you know, while you could be in the midst of a major depression and, uh, yeah, it's just, it does feel like the dark ages a bit. Yeah, yeah. I want to um, I want to just quickly clarify that before I uh, 
you know, completely concern all listeners who are taking medication, <laughs> uh, us, us two included. Um, I've read a lot of theories because I'm, as I said, interested in this sort of stuff and, and want to better understand myself and potentially what I could do to help myself and others. Um, th the other explanation we do have to keep in mind is are people who are on medication simply more ill to begin with? Right. And that's why there's a poor long-term course. I don't want to suggest that the medications are causing it. It's just one of those theories where when you look at people who take some of these psychotropics long-term versus people who don't, right. uh, there's a poorer course. And you have to consider, well, the medication is something that's different. Right. So, and, and there are so many theories out there, I think, right? Yeah, like yeah, even yeah. the theories regarding the cause of depression, right? I've heard different gut theories about yeah. Um, the makeup in the stomach and the probiotics and, and such. Yep. And there are others where I've heard it described as a an infection and swelling in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. it just seems like, yeah. And, and there again makes me feel like dark ages. Like, how do we not? Part of me thinks, how do we not have more answers than this by now with the, the way our medical field is at such a high level? Yet the other part of me is like, of course we don't. The mind is so complex. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't separate the brain from the rest of your body. Absolutely. So, you know, even if we uh, get to a point of understanding, uh, and I think, you know, it will be a long ways off because of the complexity of the brain. But even if you get to a point of understanding what's going on in the brain, uh, as soon as you introduce and you named a couple of those theories there, well, what if it starts uh, in the gut? Uh, what if it's an autoimmune response um, that ends up in the brain? Now you've got to track that down. Right. Where right. do you start? Yeah. Complex. Complex. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so take us back to age 27. And, and I think you had just yeah. you had shared with us that you you noticed your anxiety ramping up. Yeah. But you, but not the panic attacks, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I had started having uh, occasional ones, nothing major. I'd say maybe monthly, um, uh, which was still a change, right? After years of actually being symptom free. Um, and was a, a major depression on your radar at all, or were you just thinking, okay, I've got more anxiety, I need to manage this? Yeah, so I mean. It, it was a really uh, tough thing to gauge for me at the time because what I was also doing was trying to wean a little bit off my medication. So not entirely, um, but I had, uh, you know, after seven years, I felt like, um, you know, not really having the same desired effect, um, not really sure. Uh, if the, the side effects are worth it anymore, um, I had gained, I think, 60 pounds over the time period. Um, I just wanted to try tapering it down a bit, see if I get a little more, you know, activity. Right. Um, I was, you know, sleeping a lot and, and, uh, just felt very sedated. Um, so I was starting to do that. So there's definitely some anxiety that comes with that. I mean, you're, you're, you become accustomed to a substance, uh, for a number of years, um, and there's a bit of, you know, withdrawal going on. Uh, I was tapering very slowly, um, but you know there was still an effect there. So, is it that? Is it anxiety coming back? Is it just you know 
your life and things that are going on? Is it your body changing? Right? You just don't know. Right. Um, so all those things were going on uh, at the same time. Um, and I had, you know, put up with that for a couple of years. I was still feeling okay. Um, but then after, uh, yeah, I guess about a couple of years of a really slow taper, um, uh, there was a significant stressor in my life and, uh, I felt very similar to where I was, uh, at 20. What concerned me this time was that I was already on medication. Right. Right. So you're really not going back to square one where you're like, I'm in a bad place. I need to get treatment. I'm on a treatment. Right. Um, and what was particularly tough for me was I remember, um, you know, 27 years old, I remember flailing on the ground, right? Just kicking and screaming like a child by myself in my house, right? Just completely distressed. Wow. Because I didn't know how you get better the second time. Um, well, and like you said, and the and the mind the, is so powerful, and the the depression can turn those thoughts so negative so quickly and yeah. spiral down so easily. And like you said, you were probably saying to yourself, "I'm already on a medication. I'm already being treated. Yeah, and now I'm going through another episode. Now, what am I going to do?" Yeah, and we're not talking about you know being down to you know the the pixie dust. Right, right. <laughs> medication when, when people are trying to get off the last little bit. I was still taking a, a decent, uh, just slightly sub-therapeutic dose. I was not, you know, I was still taking a fair amount uh, of the medication. So, right. um, yeah, it's a combination of those things, but it's definitely the most uh, helpless I had felt. Are you able to share, uh, and if you don't want to get into details, that's fine, about yeah. what the trigger was at 27? Uh, yeah, it was a relationship breakdown. Okay. Um, and it's, it was sort of the unexpected nature of it that caught me off guard. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't generally like to be surprised, uh, with anxiety disorders. Right, so, <laughs> right, right. This was sort of <laughs> one of the most surprising things you can just have one day, um, and yeah, and it was it was very substantial. So, uh, it yeah, it was just the unexpected nature of it that was the trigger. And so you're flailing on the ground. You're, you're yeah. confused and and not one not knowing what to do. Yeah, and and that persisted for uh, a number of years. I would still say to this day it it lingers because um, I'm in a better state now. But I remember going back to my doctor and putting the medication back to where it was um, seems like a logical starting point for me. Um, and it didn't make a difference. So now I thought, well, now I'm definitely screwed because this is the dose of the medication that got me through so many years. Right. And now it's not working. Right. And were your symptoms uh, similar to your first depressive episode? I was sleeping a bit better, um, but I definitely had um, some insomnia. I had the appetite loss again. 
um, uh, real resurgence in sort of the the generalized worry. The panic wasn't as bad, but I was still having, um, you know, panic attacks had come back. Um, <clears throat> but I remember sort of the the obsessions that came back were more focused on now figuring out what to do with myself. Right. So rather than having some sort of an external target for my obsessions, I then became focused on how do I get out of this? Because everything I had done before, I've reset. I've gone back to that point and it's not helping, which is an interesting thing, right, in hindsight, because then you realize that, you know, that, this, that, was, that was one of the symptoms. The obsessions are one of the symptoms. Right. Um, they just happen to be focused on you now, which is not always a good thing. <laughs> right. Um, so I ended up at that point being referred to a psychiatrist. That was at my request, um, only because uh, I, it's not that I don't trust my family physician by any means. I just thought, well, this is what the psychiatrists are trained to do. This is their specialty. And rather than just bounce around on different medications, um, I'm going to go this route. Uh, I didn't realize I would still bounce around on different medications, just with a different prescriber. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, you know, I do. I believe in the logic that you just stated. And uh, if my brother, the family doctor, is listening, I'm sorry, Bob. Uh, but <laughs> and I do. I trust and believe that family doctors are a great place to start. Mm -hmm. I do think if it's starting to get complicated or complex. Um, and I, I believe my doc, my family doctor actually said, you know, it's time to see a psychiatrist. This is right, a little right. over my head. And I do think that there's a time when it's time to go to the specialist who deals with the medications, the interactions between the medications, the, all of the different side effects and, the, and so forth. So, so it sounds like you went to the psychiatrist and still ended up bouncing around on meds, huh? Yeah, and I think this is where... Um you know, when you alluded to earlier, did I try doing other things? This is where it really uh, hit home for me. This is where I, I, I started to look at what are some of these other theories that might factor in here and what can I start pursuing? So over the last five years, um, I have taken 15 different medications. Wow. That is right? a lot. And, and this is where you don't, this is well. This is part of why I worry about the theory I offered earlier about are you just suddenly setting your brain up for a poor long-term course by taking medications? Because I think, wait, I did fine. I did fine for seven years. What the heck happened here? And then all of a sudden, I'm treatment resistant. Um, or is it just a really bad episode? Or is it some combination of needing to do other things to get back to a place of stability that you will? Uh, you, your, your brain, your body will be receptive to medication again, right? It's all those different, different ideas. So I, uh, I started to look at other things while I'm bouncing around on these medications. Um, I, I started to look at different uh, dietary causes, right? So I, I cut sugar out of my diet, um, which uh, really helped with my moods. It didn't really help with anything else, right? Uh, your mileage may vary, as they say. Um, uh, I did find that uh, if I have sugar now, I have more mood swings. Um, but it wasn't a cure-all by any means. Exercise, I tried to become a little more, 
I don't know. I tried to do it with a little more regularity. So uh, I used to, you know, jog when I wanted to, and I tried to do a little more uh, consistent three or four days a week type of thing. Uh, again, it, it was nice while you're out doing it. Didn't really have a noticeable impact long term for me, I must say. Um, now I feel like uh, if I don't exercise, I feel the same, which is kind of strange too. But right. I uh, tried to cut out inflammatory foods for a while, right? So you end up uh, no gluten, no dairy, things like that. And then you sort of go, well, are those really inflammatory if you're not sensitive to them? Probably not. So I've gone back to those. Uh, again, didn't really feel any different. The the gut uh, theory you mentioned is interesting. I participated in a uh, clinical trial actually around sort of your microbiome. Uh, it was interesting, but again, at the end of this study, doesn't really have treatment implications, right? It's just another example of where the science is a little further uh, ahead of, of what you can do in practice. But it got me thinking. I tried different probiotics, um, different vitamins, and things like that. Again, small differences, right? Small improvements for some of them. Um, some probiotics made me much worse. Uh, you know, there's, there's no strain that you can just go, okay, this is what I need to take for my condition. Right. But if you find something that helps a little bit, yeah, why not? Are you a believer in the uh, fish oils? Yeah, the um, I, I, that's one I do take. Again, there's sort of different theories around that, right? The brain is 60% DHA, but EPA is the one that's better for inflammation. So if you buy into the inflammation hypothesis, maybe you want this one. If you want something to just theoretically help your brain's building blocks, maybe you want DHA. Uh, I don't know. Again, small improvement. I do notice a small improvement uh, with mood, uh, with energy, um, but not a substitute for medication. So how long did it take you to break out of the major depression at, at age 27? And yeah, I mean, you went through many different <sighs> meds, it sounded yeah. like. Were you on each of those medications for four weeks or so before they decided to change? Yeah. Oh, yeah, easily. Um, and I, even when I look back and, and the first time when I started being treated, as much as I felt an immediate well, you know, an effect within a week, it still took me a long time to get back to baseline. Right, right. So I was very patient with these. But at the same time, you were losing weight, not eating, and not sleeping well. Correct, correct. So, I mean, that's where, it, in my mind, it gets so frustrating. It's like, all right, now i got to take this for four weeks of yep. not sleeping, not eating, yep. um, crying bouts, and so forth. Yep. Yeah, and, and so that's when I started to look into um, this genetic testing. Is that a way to offer, or is that something that could offer me a way out rather than this trial and error? It wasn't overly helpful. I'll put that out there because it turns out I poorly metabolize most things, mm. which is interesting because then that sort of explains why I have a difficult or a poor response to a lot of these. Uh, it doesn't explain everything. Again, science is a little bit ahead of you know, how useful it is in practice. And the medication I took for seven years there is one that I poorly metabolized. So that's what I mean. It doesn't explain everything. Right. But I remember getting this back after about the 10th or so medication. And I, I you know, paid 500 bucks for this. And uh, I was like, this will be good. I can get some answers here and see where I go. And I remember looking at this and just having all the psychiatric medications in the red column. 
going, well, this doesn't help either, right? So, and that was a couple of years ago. So you still do the trial and error, right? You're thinking, well, this is a bit of a dead end. And uh, I ended up doing uh, RTMS, so the transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy. Right. I've heard it referred to as TMS. I haven't heard the R. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I ended up doing that last summer. And that's a series of times? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's 30, 30 daily sessions. Every single day consecutive? Yeah, yeah, for 45 minutes. Okay. I had a good response, fortunately. No sedation for that? No, no, it's it's not ECT, so you don't need sedation for right. that. Right. Uh, yeah, I had, I had a good response to that. It's a good sort of supplement to the, the treatments for me. Uh, unfortunately, it wears off. And can you explain for any listeners who may not know uh, what that is like? Can you describe it? Yeah, TMS is, uh, it, it's it's described, actually, the, the nurse and I were joking about this. It's sort of described uh, by a lot of patients as an angry woodpecker, just mm. pecking on your head. Uh, so it's, uh, it's painless, but it's a magnetic coil, uh, where there's, you know, a, a current that's used to stimulate the, uh, typically the, uh, front left part of the brain in depression. And it just, it sounds like a woodpecker and, uh, it's just a pulse that goes on there about, uh, uh 20 times a second. Uh, and then it stops for a few seconds and then it picks up again and that repeats for about 45 minutes. Um, yeah, and there's, you know, some headaches and stuff at first, but it's uh, very safe and, and very low uh, risks of side effects and anything like that. So so you had some headaches and that was it as far as side yeah. effects for you? Yeah that, yeah, that was it. Okay. And then you said, so do you feel impacts from that like immediately first session or does it take the full 30 and then all of a sudden you start feeling better? Yeah, for me, I had uh, a good response after a week. And the the profiles for response differ. There's some people that have more of a gradual improvement over, you know, the time period. Some people have a good response at first, and then it sort of plateaus, and that's what I had. So I, I felt an improvement after a week, uh, and then I stayed there for the rest of the treatment. I didn't get any better. But no matter what, you still fulfill that 30-day treatment? Yeah, they usually will do 20, and then you can discuss with the... Uh, position, whether to stop there or do 25 or do 30, it, it, it varies based on the protocol. Uh, I was, you know, still improving a little bit, right? We were using standardized scales to measure that and, and also self-report. So I was still improving a little bit. I wanted to continue, but uh, in hindsight, it was marginal after the first week. The first week for me was, was most substantial. And so I'm just curious, as somebody with a PhD in social work, yeah. and you obviously yeah, yeah. have done a lot of research around this, was there a deciding factor to take you to TMS? Did you contemplate ECT at all, the electric convulsive therapy, or any other therapies? Um, I, I didn't contemplate ECT specifically. Um, I, I left it up to the physician... Uh, at the hospital to, you know, make his recommendation. Uh, I, I was preferential for TMS. I figured that was a decent starting point, right? It's it's lower intensity and, and also lower risk, and you don't need, you know, to be hospitalized or accompanied to appointments and those sorts of things because of the anesthesia and ECT. So I started with that, and he agreed. I, I was, you know, still functional, definitely having some biological symptoms there that were not going away, but I was, you know, still going to work and, and doing okay. 
so yeah, we, we started with that. Um, and, and he agreed that that was the better course for me at that point. Did I look at anything else? Um, no. No, that was sort of the, the only route I went at that point. Other than experimenting here and there with some of those complementary or alternative treatments that you might try. I, I had seen a naturopath, but uh, to be fully honest, it didn't really do much for me. Some of it seemed a bit too grasping at straws. Uh, so there's, in addition to probiotics, there was, you know, different minerals that seemed to be more of a, yes, there was some sort of basis for them, but the dosage seemed kind of random. Uh, if I felt worse, you know, I was told I had to you know, take more of it and continue taking it and things like that. Um, I sort of drew the line when there was this supplement that basically grows spores in your gut. Again, to change the gut bacteria, this is the underlying theory, but uh, it seemed a little too experimental for me and didn't really have an effect. So I, I stayed in the mainstream treatments after that. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you really... Uh shared with us how long this major depressive episode lasted. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's hard to describe because I, five years later, I'm better now, but I'm still not where I was when it started. Okay. Right. And so it's, I kind of describe it as a bit of a, a new baseline, I guess. Right. Until, until you start to feel better if that happens. Right. I mean, I continue to try treatments. I'm actually, uh, going to do another round of TMS in the next couple months. You know, you got to stay with it. But I you did I sort mention of... that it's temporary relief. Mm -hmm, yeah. So, how long do they claim that TMS typically provides relief from the depression? Uh, it depends on the person. Like most things, uh, six to twelve months is is sort of uh, what I've seen. I was closer to the six months. Um, for myself. So I, I, again, noticed it in the winter where, uh, so I did this in July and August and then, uh, you know, I typically feel a little lower in the winter and, and, uh, certainly noticed that this time around again. So, and did you, uh, continue with one of the medications in the end? Are you still on a medication? Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah, the, the medication, I, I'm okay accepting that that is going to be permanent. Because, again, I know the alternative for me. For me. Right. Yeah. So I, I take two uh, and then one as needed. And, and I think, you know, the, what, I, what I still struggle with sometimes is that comparison to previous baselines, if you will. Right. I, I do struggle with, hmm, I did so well on this one for so long and now I'm doing a little worse on three. <laughs> right, right. Right. What's next? Right. What what comes down the road? Who knows? Uh, that, are you are you tough. hopeful that your baseline will continue to rise and you'll continue this path to feeling better? You have to be, right? Yeah, I think that's you, really important. Actually, you have to be, and that's where I I do maybe read a bit too much and study a bit too much for my own good, because it's it's a bit of a balance between wanting to be modest in your expectations, right? But also be hopeful. Right. Um, realistic, I hear you saying. Realistic, but also hopeful. Right. And and that's one of those contradictions you live with in life because uh, as much as you want to be hopeful, you also want to impart on people that 
this is a very serious illness that takes people's lives. Yeah. Right? And you can't discount that because you're being, uh, you know, so optimistic or so hopeful that you're discounting the severity. Right. Right. If you can find that middle ground, that's where you have to live, in my opinion. Yeah. So one of the new drugs that people are talking about for depression Mm -hmm. um, is ketamine. Mm -hmm. Have you done much research or studying around ketamine? And my understanding is that it's really for a major depression that is, uh, that also includes suicidal ideations and it's to kind of get you out of that deep, dark suicidal place. Yeah. Um, and that it too provides temporary relief and then you may have to go back for more. And it's actually right. a transfusion, I believe, right? And uh, I do know that there is one company who's trying to get it to go through the FDA to get it through a nasal spray. Yes. Um, and the uh, but it, and it also really surprises me that currently it's off label, right? So people are to, it's not really off label. My understanding is that it's it was not created to support people with depression or to use with depression. Right, right. So it's off-label, um, and there are companies trying to make it on-label, which I think would probably help for people to be insured through it. But it really mm-hmm. surprises me that, from what I understand, it's anesthesiologists who are currently giving it off-label, and they have no mental health background, <laughs> from my understanding. And that just really shocked me when I heard that. Right. right. So they, they know how to administer it, but they don't know anything necessarily about mental health and they just, uh, so that, that just surprised <laughs> me. I'm curious on your take yeah. on that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're following protocols that are established for, um, for ketamine infusion based on, you know, what we know about it at this point for, for depression treatment. Um, there's, there's a few physicians in my area who do prescribe this off label. It's not covered by the public health insurance uh, where I am. So, you know, the protocols you have to go in and, and sort of pay out of pocket and, and decide if that's something you want to do. My uh, only hesitancy personally, and I, I would certainly be open to trying it, it's just that the thoughts for me that accompany my anxiety, um, I don't know if I'd want to take that risk right now, uh, you know, with the uh, ketamine, right? Because you can have different reactions to it in terms of, you know, hallucinogenic effects and things like that. Right. Uh, it's just for me, if I was, if I was a, you know, person with a purely depressive disorder without the anxiety component, I might be okay with it. I'm just not right now. Right. And I have no other way to describe that. I think it's one of those things kind of like microdosing psychedelics, right? I think it needs to be on the table for people. Yeah as an option. Um, right. I just don't know if I personally could do it right now. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think having been in that deep, dark place and knowing, like you said, that it is a, um, you know, this is an illness that takes lives and knowing the severity and how debilitating it can be, I, I be- agree with you and think all things mm-hmm. should be on the table and, you know, used with professionals um, mm-hmm. and uh, responsibly. And one thing I like to talk about, like I I did a blog post on medications and yeah. talked about it being a contentious topic. The piece that I like to 
make clear to people, and I hope listeners understand this, is don't judge people. I think we all take this stuff seriously, and it's not an easy decision. We know that there are risks. uh, You know, we're taking something that, that impacts our mind. At the same time, like you said, yeah, what's my alternative? I could lay in bed and not be able to get up or out of bed, you know? So, yeah. Um, I think it's really important that people practice some empathy and and understand that people are making the best decision they can for themselves regarding whether or not to take medications. Yeah. It does surprise me in, in this field how much stigma there is towards uh, mental illness medications. Uh, I, I see a lot of it online that I don't really see with any other illness. Right. And maybe it comes back to what we've talked about in a way that, uh, you know, we don't know the long-term effects. We don't know exactly how they work in some cases uh, or why they work when they shouldn't by all accounts in some people and, uh, and, and different things like that. Um, but like you said, this is, this is all that's available. I, I often will say to people, if you have some sort of a secret medication that you're hiding from us, please tell us, and I'd be glad to try it. Because there isn't anything better that we're not taking in place of these. This is what we have available to help us right now. So, Yeah, and, and I think it's perfectly fine if there are people who are anti-medications and, and yeah. don't believe in them for themselves. Yeah. I don't believe they should shame other people for their decisions. Um, that they've made because I I really believe most people don't take the decision lightly and although at the same time I I know yeah I mean I was at a desperate point right so but yet I've continued with them because in my case I feel like there are certain things I've put into my life to support my mental health and I'm not ready or willing to give up any of them because of how scary that deep dark place was for me and and I don't Mm -hmm. want to risk falling back into that place. So I still go to a men's support group every other week, Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. still take a medication. So whatever I can do to make sure that I don't get back there and, and I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemies. Um, So I'm going to do what I, what I need to for my health. You know, I'm really impressed. Uh, I did have a therapist on the show not too long ago. He's a marriage Mm. and family therapist. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But to be able to have some professionals and, you know, you with a PhD in social work and practicing social work and to be able to still talk about it and share your story, I'm really impressed by that. Well, this is, um, it's a bit of a shift in in my own attitude, to be honest with you, Al, because I... um, I'd say for the first, you know, 10 years of my career, which all sort of started around the same time as this, um, I would try to, you know, just use my experience in the back of my mind through my work, but never talk about it directly affecting me. I think what I've noticed over the last little while is that there's an opportunity for people to share their lived experience in professional capacities, but it's a little more compelling if you're willing to come out and say, no, this is my experience. It's not what I think someone's experience might be, (laughs) right? Uh, It it creates that distance where you're still maybe talking as a clinician, maybe talking as a professional, and there's, you know, a lot of professionals who do that. Um, You don't need lived experience to be a professional. 
But if you're willing to say, no, you know what, this is a personal experience for me that informs my work, but this is just the reality of it, uh, I, I think that has a healing effect as well. I think it, yeah, I think it absolutely does. And in my case, knowing that like a psychologist, for example, has been through mm -hmm. a depression, that just, it helps me for whatever reason. Maybe it's a bonding effect. Maybe it allows me to know that they've been through it. They know what I'm going through. They can really relate to what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. um, would you, so do you share it at work with clients in any way at all? I mean, if somebody's contemplating medication, would you share that you're on a medication? Yeah. So I, I will say I actually don't see clients in my current role. Um, okay. uh, I, I've had those frontline uh, clinical roles in the past. I'm in a managerial position in my current oh, nice. uh, employment. So yeah. So I, I don't see clients directly uh, in my current role, but I, I have in the past, I mean, you, you still have to keep your professional boundaries in check and I wouldn't start recommending specifics or anything like that. That's right. not something in my scope of practice, but yeah, I've certainly used that to bridge that gap before. Not a lot. Um, it's again, it's, it's not usually something, uh, people would come to me to discuss. They would usually be talking to their physician, right? But if it came up and I could see someone was really struggling, I, I can count on one hand how many times I've done that. But I have I have disclosed in different situations like that. Yeah. What about with um, people you manage at work? Well, it's the same same type of thing, right? You have a certain boundary <laughs> uh, with people that uh, that report to you that you have to maintain. Um, but I'm generally open with my colleagues, and again, that was probably something that shifted a few years ago. Uh, it was maybe realizing, okay, if this is my new normal or my new baseline for now, at least for the foreseeable future, I want to bring whatever experience I have uh, that could potentially help others, right? I want to bring that into my work. Uh, and, and so that's when I became a little more open about it uh, with colleagues and, and with you know, how, how I approach the work that I do. Um, and I think that's one of the shifts too, is, is when I naively thought as, you know, 22, 23 year old that I was cured as long as I take this medication and don't rock the boat. I didn't really identify with the illness anymore. So, uh, it's not that I didn't feel like I was in a position to talk about it. I just didn't have those frequent reminders that it was there. Um, cause I felt good. I was symptom free, you know, as the line got a little blurrier that you can be both uh, symptomatic, but recovering, <laughs> uh, this is part of my daily reality. I'm going to be a little more, uh, open to talking about it. Right. Right. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, your PhD is in social work, and I know you had a, a focus on workplace wellness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So sure. can you say a bit more about workplace wellness? Well, workplace wellness, I mean, it seems to be um, uh, a bit of a buzzword. Um, there's a lot of wellness initiatives that go on uh, in, in organizations these days. I was interested in this, uh, I guess – 
shortly after I finished with my master's degree, I was practicing. I was um, interested in workplaces. I've always been interested in organizations uh, and and how they work and how they organize people and and these sorts of things. But there were a couple situations with colleagues where I, I witnessed just how much control uh, an employer could have over their lives to their detriment. And it was one of those sort of events that sparked an interest in me. I was thinking, this is this is a little strange to me. This this seems like, you know, these are by all accounts decent people, professionals coming to work. And they seem miserable because of some very blatant acts by their employers. Um, and that was sort of the uh, the the start of, of this interest. Um, Do you have any examples of what the employers may have done that you witnessed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so the the one that the the one that really stands out for me was uh, the uh, employer was uh, putting one of the employees under surveillance and had accused him of uh well essentially stealing money for gasoline uh the whole thing was a bit of a cover-up where uh it, it turns out you know he he had permission all along from the employer to do this uh but it wasn't really in uh, accordance with the corporate policy and so when this was discovered um sort of in a in a real effort to save face by the uh, the manager who had approved this uh the the lie just spiraled right oh my well, goodness that sounds well, awful they needed a fall guy yeah yeah it was you know over over a couple tanks of gas right it was one of the first few few events where I was like oh that's that just seems extreme how you can have that much influence over somebody who's just trying to go to work and uh, and I you know I talked to some colleagues after that who um, were aware of other things that that involved um, you know bullying and harassment in the workplace and things like that that seemed to be going unaddressed. Um, so that was sort of just the, the general start of it. I had I had uh, proposed an idea to a couple schools when I was applying to PhDs. I think I want to study um, social work in the workplace. Um, I had a, a really good mentor. Um, at university in, in my master's program who had studied employee assistance programming and uh, I ended up uh, you know learning a lot from from him and that was just the general topic now where I took this was uh, unlike workplace wellness where there's a lot of seminars there's a lot of learning sort of putting it all on the employee to become more resilient which is one of my favorite words uh, in, in this field um, what are the organizations doing that make your life and your work life worse and causing uh, distress and are detrimental to your health and your workplace uh, wellness? So that was, that was where I took it. And I had um, uh, completed a survey with about 300 social workers um, about their own workplaces and, and those sorts of factors. Uh, what are things that happen in your workplace that affect your job satisfaction, affect your psychological distress, things that uh, by all accounts you individually can't improve. You can't go to a workshop or a, a seminar and fix these things. These are structural issues. Um, you know, uh, And a lot of it is, is just you know, workload, uh, unrealistic demands, things that a lot of us will, will talk about in, in any field or any job. But I was 
studying it from the perspective of uh, you know a social work background and um, employee assistance and and uh, some industrial organizational psychology and, and some of those theories as well. And have you done any uh, examinations or, or research and looking closely at organizations or companies that are known to really take care of the mental well-being of their employees? You know what uh, What keeps – it's a little outside of, of um, the research that I was doing specifically, but – you know, a lot of the major Fortune 500 companies are in the news for doing different things, whether it's, you know, on-site, uh, on-site gyms or f- lunches that are provided or um, flex time arrangements, childcare, those sorts of things. Uh, you hear about them. Um, I don't know if that fully explains what it's like working for a large company like that. I'm sure there's a flip side as well, depending on on who you ask. Uh, there's also a lot of high stress and a lot of demands associated with some of these companies, and um, you know, primarily tech companies that I'm talking about. But um, I was really trying to go back to just some of the uh, basic things that were learned uh, in the 1960s, 1970s, just around factors that are associated with good workplaces, right? And I think we've gotten away from some of that with the pace of work and the influence of technology and especially how helping professions have been uh, essentially, um, you know, there's so much time spent with uh, data entry and and administrative tasks and things like that that have taken people away from what they would call the traditional helping role and, and the effect of that. So. That's really interesting, and yeah, yeah. some some of the listeners may know this um, about me, but I have uh, started to do some surveys around educator mental wellness, mental mm-hmm. health, and uh, I have a pretty strong belief that particularly urban educators, that we are dealing with lots of students who are going in and out of complex trauma on a daily basis, yeah. and yeah. we have consequences and implications to our own mental health. So I'm really trying to explore ways to support educators and I would love to kind of be involved with creating a system of supports that really mm-hmm. recognizes this need. Cause right now the, the needs of our kids is outrageous, right? There are so many mental health needs of our students, yeah. but, but yep. at least people are aware of it, talking yep. about it and trying to come up with, with solutions. Nobody really is talking about, the mental health of the educators yet you know there's plenty of people who are taking mental health leaves of absences there are plenty of people yep. who have um, attempted suicides and leave the profession and uh, I really think that we can do a lot better so that's part of my passion so it's really uh, interesting mm-hmm. to have a conversation with you about the workplace yeah well and it, it's such an important aspect of, of a lot of people's lives and it tends to get neglected um, in terms of the effect that it can have. Um, and, and some of the research that I uncovered, not that I personally d- discovered, but uncovered through my <laughs> years of reading about this to do my thesis, um, you know, the same stressful event, so you can take an interpersonal conflict, for example, um, uh, you know, fight with a spouse versus fight with a coworker, and the effects tend to linger much longer and have much more of a substantial effect when it's uh, in the workplace. And I don't know if that's, you know, a, a, an aspect of 
being outside of your control or concerned about the appearance of that in a in a workplace setting versus you know the comfort of your home i'm not sure i just there were little tidbits like that that stood out to me i go well that's interesting why uh you know it's, it's another example of how the same thing can happen but because it's at work it has a more substantial effect and I think there's a role for this in any field right now, um, education uh, or otherwise. There's a role for this type of approach. Uh, and I, I don't mean to sound like I'm maligning the importance of uh, wellness initiatives that improve the employee's life or employee's focus. Uh, I just see a lot of things where they're uh, almost sold as if you do this for an hour, you'll be better at work uh, without addressing any sort of work factors. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a really important point. Yeah. Um, absolutely an important point. And I think uh, we have to do a better job. Uh, people, you know, the employers really need to, to do a better job of yep. focusing on it and supporting the employees as much as they can. So yep. uh, before we uh, end here, mm -hmm. I would love to hear... If you have any uh, types of suggestions or words of wisdom for anybody who is right now suffering from a bout of depression. Yeah, it's, um, I got to put on my, uh, my optimist hat here, I guess, my hopeful hat <laughs> uh, to wrap it up. I think it will sound trite uh, because it's advice that I think you've heard or you might have heard before. Um, but I really did try to do this by myself for a little too long. I had all the supports in place, but I tried to, you know, problem solve what was going on and do my own research and go to my own appointments and this and that without uh, fully taking advantage of the supports that are available in my life. So, um, whether it's a professional, whether it's a loved one, whether it's a close friend or someone you trust at work, I hope you're comfortable disclosing that you're struggling. I hope you have someone who's receptive and willing to help you along your recovery journey. Uh, and if not, one of the great things that's happened online, and I'm only on Twitter, so I don't know about other uh, platforms, but there are some great online communities to support people, and it's amazing to see the level of support that exists online among people who don't know each other personally, and that can be the starting point. But if you don't feel like this is going away, if you don't feel like it's getting any better, if you've been struggling for a long time, don't wait it out. Uh, this is uh, potentially a serious illness, and I think it's tempting sometimes, especially with invisible illnesses, uh, and, you know, whether you call this invisible or not, depending on, you know, your outward appearance, I think is debatable, but um, it's, you know, often called an invisible illness because we can't see what's going on uh, in the brain, and there is an added stigma with that. Don't buy into it. Get yourself some help from someone or some place that you trust. 
I think that's great advice. I do think, uh, I don't think you are out of the norm for how long you did struggle on your own without really reaching out. You know, I've read some, some research that says 10 years is the average for men living with depression before finally reaching out for help and and don't wait it out. So, well, Derek, I really appreciate your time. It's been a joy and a pleasure to interview somebody who's deeply embedded in the work with Mm -hmm. uh, such knowledge that you have. And uh, I hope uh, you continue your path to better and better mental health every day. I appreciate that, Alan. Thanks for creating this platform. This is uh, a need right now, and and uh, I hope we can continue to grow the community of, of people willing to talk about their experience and make some progress on the, the issues that uh, affect us. All right, sounds good. Well, thanks again, and make sure you stay healthy. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.